Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Hotel Tonight. If you are like me and you are not so great at planning ahead, you have to try Hotel Tonight. Hotel Tonight is an app that helps you find amazing hotel deals at the last minute, up to seven days in advance. It's perfect for a spontaneous getaway or indulging in a little staycation. All it takes is 10 seconds, just three taps and a swipe. So what are you waiting for? Get in on these killer last minute deals and download the Hotel Tonight app now. Today's episode of The Watch is also brought to you by a little website called The Ringer. Before we get started, you I want you to make sure you check out Love in the Time of Nuclear War by Chaos and Collins. Cam is a friend of The Watch, and this piece was just published on The Ringer, and he revisits the 1988 film Miracle Mile, which is a classic. Anthony Edwards up in this piece. This is part of our monthly column, The Politics of American Movies, where we explore everything from racially progressive westerns and anti-fascist comedies to documentaries about the working class and popcorn flicks with subversive bite. You can read Love in the Time of Nuclear War right now on TheRinger.com. Tons of stuff. Cam's amazing. Check it out. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, is this it? It's Andy Greenwald! Whatever happened? Uh, Andy, very special episode today. We are joined by Lizzie Goodman, author of the new book, Meet Me in the Bathroom, Rebirth and Rock and Roll in New York City 2001 to 2011. This is so fun for us. This is very exciting. Not only did we live through these years in New York City with most of our memories intact, um, but Lizzie is an old friend from Spin Magazine days and beyond. And what she's done here is truly astonishing because it's not just that this is an incredibly uh, detailed with tons of quotes from many of your favorite bands like The Strokes and Interpol and White Stripes, Yay, Yes, Killers, Ryan Adams, Franz Ferdinand, blah, blah, blah. But it's also incredibly fun, incredibly funny to read. It's an oral history, one of the most fun uh, formats to read and one of the hardest to pull off. But the other thing, and I think this comes out in our conversation with Lizzie, is that it really does have a strong authorial vision about what New York City means, why it matters, why this era that a lot of people might dismiss as just being some bands that never quite made it actually does matter to our larger cultural conversation and landscape. It is a total, total blast. And I think we had a really great conversation covering why Jonathan Fire Eater matters or yeah. doesn't, what it means to export the aesthetic of Brooklyn, um, and a lot more, right? Yeah, and it's a 600-page social, his- social history of New York, you know, and a, and a real spiritual sequel to Please Kill Me, the Lex McNeil chronicle of 70s, 70s punk in New York. And it, uh, even more than that, you know, it's it's got uh, such vision of what it was like to live during that time, go to those bars, hear those bands, and also just like the, the, the people that failed, too. You know, it's not all success stories. It's not all bright lights. Are you happy that the dark room is memorialized in a book? Yeah. I'm glad. <laughs> like, I'm glad, I just feel glad like... we froze all those in amber. Uh, <laughs> just no. bury them. Also, guys, I just want you to know that um, Chris really, really dug my quote about the Rapture's House of Jealous Lovers on page 220, where I say it's, quote, an awesome song. Yeah. <laughs> I really contributed. He said they finally released that one awesome song they, in 2002. They did it, bro. They did it. Oh, what a great talk. Andy uh, guys, A&R. If you are hearing this today, we recorded this on Thursday, um, the 25th. If you are in Los Angeles, you may have time still to see Lizzie with Mark Ronson and Albert Hammond Jr., both of whom are in the book, uh, and Gideon Yago, who's also in the book, at Book Soup tonight. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, she may be doing an event in your town, but otherwise, the book is in stores now. You should check it out, and let's just get into our conversation with Lizzie. Uh, Chris and I are so excited to be joined by old friend, author of 
this brilliant, very exciting oral history, Meet Me in the Bathroom. Lizzie Goodman, thank Hi you guys. for meeting us in the podcast studio. Thanks for coming. <laughs> it's not a bathroom, and yet I came. So, you came you anyway. Know, yes, I came anyway. Thank you for having me. I'm really, really thrilled to be here. We are so excited that you, of all people, wrote a book about all of our lives. <laughs> uh, it's very it's, it's, it's very exciting. It's You're very, welcome. It's very surreal. We are going to yeah. get into it. We're going to talk about all of the boldface names in the book. <laughs> like talking. Andy Greenwald? Like, well, that's, that that's one's a, big. That, that's minor. Italics, maybe. <laughs> Uh, Zach Chancery. Chris Ryan's in the book, too. Yeah, I Chris get, Ryan I, is also I get, in the book. I get the, uh, the Greenwald umbrella production That's under his shingle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, one thing that we have to talk about is I do think that Chris and I had a very uh, Zelig-like ability to almost be in many of these places. Like, I have a Amazing. lot of memories of going to Misshapes, um, which is a party you talk about in the book, either just as it was beginning and no one was there except Paul Banks sitting on a banquette by the DJ booth, or coming at the end when it was a disaster and Madonna had already left and it was about to be 4 a.m. And the like floor would have been literally like soggy paper towel level of consistency, and you yeah. would have died. So good call. Yeah, that's so the time you want to show up. Yeah, my, well, the, one of my favorite parts about the book is just this. You know, you it obviously forces you to go back through your own memories of New York at the time, <laughs> such as they exist. But it's incredible also <laughs> just to imagine like being. I'm sure that we were at bars at the same on the same nights, and just like my vision of what would be happening and your vision of what would be happening and his vision of what would be happening would be so different. Not even like, oh, like just based on like whether or not you like, I thought Interpol was going to be a big deal or not, or whether or not you were like, oh no, TV on the radio is really going to be the, the, the <laughs> yeah. breakout stars from this. Yeah. Or just even the different bars you would go to. It would, I was wondering what was a preconceived notion that you had about this time in your life that was really upended by the actual reporting of yeah. the book. Because there's so much reporting. We need to say that going in. I can't even imagine how many interviews. I know. I'm pretty tired. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, I keep saying this, but it remains uh, increasingly apparent as I actually, like, allow myself to think about what I did because you can't really do that while you're doing it. And it's like, a crazy person decided to do this. I was talking to our, our friend Rob Sheffield the other day about that, and he was just like, oh, yeah. If anyone, I mean, everyone tried to talk you out of this. You just wouldn't listen. I was like, <laughs> God, I don't remember that either. So that feeds right into your, I don't remember. I mean, I think it's not so much that there was like, a you know, one interview or another that really wildly contradicted my memory of that time. But there, it's exactly what you say for me as well, reading it and for all the band members who are talking about this and assorted folks who are around. Um, it was just this sort of relatively subtle or maybe seemingly inconsequential but nonetheless like very significant differences in memories of specific nights mm -hmm. even yeah. like what that was at that bar I completely would have sworn in a court of law that that was before this record came out or that record came out or we hadn't even seen that band yet or we were already and the, just the, the sort of completely conflicting Rashomon quality yeah. of memory. Um, so that. And then, I mean, the other thing that's important to that that came that came up for me when reporting this, and I've heard this from some of the participants as well, is just, yeah, like the the stories that I knew because I knew these people or were writing about these bands or whatever are Strokes, Interpol, to some extent, yeah, 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 like, et cetera. Sarah, who was my roommate, um, great star of the book among the many Our um, Sarah Lewitton Sarah Lewitton the who, best who will be listening and will yell oh, if yeah. we don't say her no she's name. asked me 15 times when I'm coming here <laughs> and is like basically like probably here watching we don't even know um, hi Sarah um, but just those were my sort of like immediate 
sort of cohort, I guess. But the DFA arm of this was completely a mystery to me before I started writing. So obviously I knew LCD Sound System and loved LCD Sound System, but they might as well have existed in a different city as far as I Mm -hmm. knew. I I did Um, a a Tim Goldsworthy, James (laughs) Murphy, like front of book thing for Time Out. It was like one of the first ten things I wrote when I moved to New wow. York. Wow. Okay. Chris had a and he had first... the same rap about well, you. You haven't had just some of love yet. Right. You that. Know? Okay. Good. I'm glad he's <laughs> not giving me any new material. I remember you had Chris. You had a first edition DFA little pin. Yeah. That you had on your jacket. Oh, that's like hot. In 1999. Yeah. He was repping. You were repping hard. Too bad well the eBay done. market on those cratered. It crashed. <laughs> I, I'm glad you mentioned the Rashomon like quality to it because that's also something that's one of the best features of an oral history, yeah. which is a I don't need to tell you this one of the most difficult genres to pull Not off. Not that easy, turns out. Um, but Oops. one of the most enjoyable to read, and one of the reasons it is so enjoyable to read is when you get when someone says it, it's the Arrested Development thing with the Ron Howard voice, where someone says it was easy to do it, and then <laughs> Julio Bunton shows up and says it wasn't easy. Um, Totally. Ron Howard, my our, our hero for the oral history <laughs> form. Thank you, Ron. But also, yeah. it's um, this book does a great job of celebrating and gently interrogating and pushing back on this idea of um, legendary nights, legendary scenes, of this idea of anything being um, preconceived as mm. genius. It, it, it all falls into once – the, once these things fade into drunken memories is when they start to become epic. Totally. Epic. That's very well said. I'm like – Wow, Andy, where were you when I needed you? I was trying to. I, I, I but was, you were I was on available. the phone. God damn it! I just didn't know to ask you that exact question. Whatever he just said is exactly what I meant. Everyone listening, yes. I mean, I think that is part of that's the form and the, well, that's the nature of memory mm-hmm. and of and of legend making mm-hmm. and myth making, and it's also a particularly. Uh, the oral history form lends itself particularly well to showcasing the way that works, I think. Um, because, yeah, like there's uh, there's a sense of – one of the number one things that I heard – this is probably the best way to say that. The, one of the number one things that I heard when I started reporting this was literally from all, a lot of these artists, why would you do that? Why would anyone care? Like you're going to do really? what? Oh, yeah. And that's partially like it's easy to be like, oh, that's just like – tell me how important I am rock star ego or something but I, I and I'm sure in some cases that's part of it but I also think that it was genuine there was a sense of um, at least among not maybe a majority but many key participants mm. that there what you know really wasn't that just a thing that's that enemy cooked up to like help us sell albums in the UK during that time and I mean, I think that's again. I don't think anyone who would art who says that means it one hundred percent. But I do think people were feeling genuinely sort of um, baffled by why a publisher would buy this, you know, why and why I would spend all of this time trying to well, assemble it, which is a different question. Well, um, but I think that the, what's great about your book is that it, it answers the question. And I have to say, even when I heard you were doing it and we spoke about it. I was excited because this was our life and our, our 20s in New York, and I loved a lot of these bands and these characters, and I, I knew that you, I knew the stories would be good, even, and right. there are so many that I had no idea about uh, in here. But what I didn't appreciate, and I love so much, is that it's a little bit elegiac as you read the book, because it is, all, all oral histories or all scene histories about music or about any kind of fertile artistic period are generally stories about mistakes or missed opportunities, and there's a bookend. What's weighing over this is really a bookend for an entire industry. Yeah. This is really about the last gasp of trying to do something. Yes. And I think your ability to hone in on, on that early and weave that through the book is what makes it crucial. It's not just about parties. It's about how in many ways these were the last kinds of these parties. Yeah. I mean, 
I'm glad that that comes across. And I, I remember talking to you sort of not towards, I mean, sort, toward a, sort of towards the relative finish line of writing it about that and feeling glad that I think you sort of said that some of the questions that I was asking you were making you see a little bit more of how I was going after that phenomenon or that sort of larger theme. I mean, I hate larger themes. Like they all have all the larger, no larger themes, but that those themes have to come out of the stories of the characters in the bands and that they do and that I was aiming to do that. And I, that was a good sign for me. I was like, oh, cool. I'm glad Andy doesn't, thinking I'm l- slightly less crazy than he might have when this originally started. <laughs> it's but, a very um, heavy book. You it's, are it's, crazy. <laughs> I am crazy. And it was a thousand pages before. Um, oh so gosh. whatever. This is the short version. Um, but he touches on something that immediately grabs you. And if you lived in New York during this time period, it's so evocative. And if you didn't, I'm sure you're just like, this is fascinating. But you often, I I often grapple with, you know, why do I not feel as connected to new music now? And I think so much of it is an extension of your social life at the time. Because you're going out and and even in my, weirdly, one of my favorite parts of the book is the intro. And this idea that you're unlocking New York City like a video game and that this mm-hmm. cast of characters who are major D's and barbacks and record store clerks like I was and people who are working like kind of lower in- entry level media jobs and then all winding up at the same bars and the same nightclubs is what eventually informs the music and the fact that this stuff grew out of misshapes and the fact that it grew up out of sway and Morrissey nights and yeah. weird things like that was like my favorite part about it because that actually may be what I miss the most totally. about that time in my life. It's analog life. Yeah. I mean, there's a one of my favorite, I'm so glad you got all of that out of it and are feeling that it's because it, what's hysterical is that it's, we're not, I mean, we're not that old, you know? <laughs> we're pretty old, but we aren't that speak old. For yourself. Speak for <laughs> I, I will speak for all of us <laughs> in this moment. But you birthday. know, just that there, that the starkness of the difference between um, a life that I would have had in my early 20s and a life that's possible for someone in their early 20s to have right now is astonishing. And to, to, just to one of my favorite scenes that sort of brings that to life, even for me when I heard it, having lived that, mm-hmm. you know, that recently still was like, oh, yeah, that's how we used to do things is when Tunde is talking about, Tunde from TV on the radio is talking about being at some loft party mm-hmm. in Brooklyn and seeing some guy like kind of roof hopping from building to building and sort of, I I mean, I may even as speaking of Rashomon be misremembering exactly how Tunde phrases this, but basically that like there's a dude, he's on a roof and he kind of comes into this party and you go and like raid the fridge and take whatever beer you can get out of that weird lobby. It was me and I was practicing parkour (laughs) and I was pretty upset about the misrepresentation of that in this book actually. Well, that's what I was getting at. I didn't want to out you right here on live, etc. But you know, and then this sort of idea, that kind of feeds into this idea that you would see that dude and like have a night with that dude and then maybe you'd see them at the cafe a week or two later and then you'd see them one more time and that person would become your friend for that reason because Mm -hmm. it's like I just saw you at the same places I go to because we have to leave our houses in order to make any kind of connection with another person and that is just a basic through line like no matter how shy you are a lot of these people are you know, mm-hmm. paralyzingly shy yeah. humans who were forced 
I love this in the Interpol story where Daniel talks about like, I had to be in a bit, like I had to figure out how to make this possible or I was going to be a miserable person in life. And so you have to go and talk to the Carlos D in your class and make that connection as opposed to what we have now where it's not like that. It's a great point because- That's how we met. This isn't, yeah, but (laughs) this isn't- It's probably how we all- Orders, and Rosemont. This this is not um, self-aggrandizing to say this, but to live in New York in this period as we did, every single quote unquote character is someone that we would see. Now, I don't mean I was friends with them. I don't mean we were hanging with them at the same table, but there were the bars that they would go to or the restaurants they would go to, or you would end up in a booth with them or an elevator or in some cases a bathroom. These things did happen due to that personal collision. And I think that you're, you're touching on something that that dates the book in a way. Yeah. Um, the other thing, and I, I, I had to get this in here, is reading this, the thing that I feel, other than the personal connections that you're talking about, the other thing that just carbon dates this for me in such an intense way is that Manhattan was cool in the center of everything. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I was struggling with this, you know, trying to express this to people recently, but I moved to New York in, we all moved to New York, I think, in 99, right? Or, yeah. I was, I mean, I was in, I started coming in like 99. I was in Philly, but yeah. 2000. And, well, we were in yeah. Philly before. So. <laughs> See? But, but it, it, so it, yeah, in 99, 2000, I was there the summer of 98. Um, the the gravitational pull of every night and everything that we wanted to do or be or, or experiment with, all of it was the Lower East Side or the East Village. Totally. That was it. Yeah. And that's where the bars were. And then I remember like in 05 or 06 being like Fat Baby is opening and bemoaning like, oh, Bridge and Tunnel people are coming here. Man, who goes to Manhattan anymore, nobody. right? No, nobody. I, I, it's, it's astonishing. Except me. Like, this is how I, I actually don't. I never moved to Brooklyn, and I sort of like somehow skipped that. If the reports about the subway are true, it sounds like you're never going to go anyway. <laughs> yeah, like, I think that's done now. It was actually prescient of me. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was training myself ten years in advance to be able to survive the L train shutting down. Um, it's, it's cr- no one will believe you. You've perhaps had this experience. I love how there's. I mean, I think. The idea, it's in the book, it's, I believe, one of the chapter titles, um, but, you know, that cabs don't even go there. Like, yes. that people do not believe this, but it is 100% true that even, not even, you know, in 1999, where for sure that was the case, but in 2003, 2004, even moving into kind of the mid, if you were gotten a cab, they would sort of, they would treat your request to go to Brooklyn like s- something they would consider. So mad at you. And you, they, you had to like basically be like, I'm not getting out. You had to fight with or the cab or bribe like, right, them. Or if you were me, you'd It was just impossible to go there. There's Galapagos and yeah. there was Cokies and then later there was North Six. Yes. And like, that was basically it for a long, long time. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I'm sitting here as someone who was tasked by Spin Magazine to write not one, but two articles this is that had favorite. to lie about where people lived, I basically. Uh, the, the, What's the, the opening line, Andy, about in Park Slope? Like, uh, the sun <laughs> is setting in Park Yeah, they asked me to write a piece <laughs> about Brooklyn Rock that featured all these Manhattan bands. And then I got, and I lived in Park Slope, which was not cool. It's never been cool, thank no. God. And I had at the co-op. I had liars. <laughs> I had Angus from the Liars and other dude who wasn't Angus from the Liars, the short one, meet me at, at Great Lakes, which is this indie rock bar in Park Slope. Yeah, and I was like, Dawn, like the sun is setting behind the stroller emporiums of Park Slope yeah, while we drink pints of Rheingold. And then with Vampire Weekend too, uh, Rostam lived in Brooklyn Heights yeah. when I interviewed him. But the rest, like Ezra lived on the Upper West Side. 
Yeah. They don't, I mean, but I think what that really, and I didn't really know this going in, but what I learned from the reporting or even from having to assemble it, you sort of discover your own story, right? Is that that is a metaphor for how, I mean, part of that is, like, I stand by the idea, sorry guys, but that Vampire Weekend are a Brooklyn band. Okay. Even though they, it, it because, or that you could make that argument. I'm not even sure that argument is 100% the one I would make, but it's certainly makeable. And the reason it's makeable to me is because it showcases the transition we're even talking about, which is that geographic location is no longer what what we're talking about. So when you say Brooklyn band, you're not talking about what you were saying when you said two years ago, a Manhattan band, meaning Mm -hmm. Interpol or The Strokes or DFA or whatever. Those artists had some sort of tie in a geographical way to where they came from, even if it was just the clubs or mm-hmm. exactly as you say, r- meeting other people yeah. in a certain way. There was a circuit. You would do there the was Angelica's a circuit, And that Kim's, was part of it. Yeah, you know? like, but by bars. this time, it's like what people mean when they say Vampire Weekend is a Brooklyn band is entirely different from what you meant. They don't need to be from Brooklyn, in other words, to be a Brooklyn band, because the idea of it is what you're talking about as opposed to the actual place. Um, right, the exported aesthetic. Yeah, the exported, the, the fact that you can go to, as as you talk about in the book and is important to note, you know, that you can go to any city in the world and feel a, a sense of the Brooklyn neighborhood of that city. And it's Brooklyn. It's not Manhattan, but it's like this hybrid New York idea that's sort of been synthesized online yeah. during this period of time. I have like a kind of massive two-part question. Should I just Whoa. go through it? I'm excited. Right. Do I have a pen? I might need well, a pen. <laughs> so because this is, it's, it's, it's largely about the beginning of the book. I was curious, you're talking about assembling it. Obviously, Strokes and Stripes and and, and yeah, 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 t- take up a lot of like the the meat of it and that Radio City show is clearly like an inflection point. How did you arrive at Jonathan Fire Eater as Patient Zero? Patient Zero. Oh my God, awesome. (laughs) I've been talking so much about this and no one has put it quite that way and that is right on. Well, because I... Yeah, I know they are. It was was immediately like, I was like, yes. Yes. You got it right. Yep. Oh, good. That's exactly right. Gold stars for me in my... (laughs) That's our review. Type A per- I know. But it was, but it was a, <laughs> Nail like it. a on page three a, yes. about a specific kind yes. of trajectory that I, that's the, and the trajectory I want to talk to you about. But how did you arrive at John? So Fire? totally, um, they. I mean, reporting yeah. like you would. I had heard. God, I wonder how I even knew at first. I don't. I don't remember how I first heard of them. I mean, I kind of knew. I think, but this is the answer. Really, is reporting like I had. I had heard. That they're like a lot of people say they'd heard. I mean, you're sort of watching it unfold in the book of this band, Jonathan Fire Eater, who'd been around basically right before I got there and right before like my friends and bands became successful. And it was like this weird ghost sort of boogeyman tale that people would use to mm-hmm. be like, yeah, like the, the ones who wanted to shit on the strokes would use. Jonathan Fireeaters, the metric reference yes, for how would. to do that. And but what was hilarious about that is that this had already started happening. I nobody knew who the hell they were. I mean, no, like a lot of people did, but nobody from that like the strokes didn't know who they yeah. were. I didn't know who they were. I mean, as someone who was just a few years younger, I missed them. And yeah. so, so so but as a journalist, that's obviously interesting. You're like, why do people keep talking about this band? So what happened there? And so anyone who had been in New York or been around New York Rock, any of the record industry executives, any of the journalists who I talked to would mention them. Okay. And so I went to look into 
I had heard their music already, obviously. Like, I'm, I, I hadn't heard of them in 2001 or something, but over the 10-year period that this was reported, I did, I got into that EP, like the Interpol guys are obsessed with it and people would talk about it. So it sort of became for me as a fan of music during the period of time the book covers uh, a kind of secret, I don't know, a secret band to know about that was like, yeah, they were pretty good. But then the, the reason I started the book with them was that it really just seemed clear from talking to people that this artist, A, was important was awesome, kind of already knew that, but B, had uh, shaped the way the industry would receive these bands and kind of added to the drama, storytellers that we are, of how unlikely it was that any of these rock bands would ever get the hell out of New York City because this had just happened and it had been a massive disaster. And Stewart serves as a a cautionary tale. Totally. What kind of shape is he in now? Um, I haven't talked to him in a little while. He, like... (laughs) Stewart is still so Stewarty. I mean, he like Stewart the lead Stuart singer. Stewart Lupton, yeah. yes. And then the band went on to form the Walkmen yes. when Stewart was out of the picture. Stewart has not, yeah. The Walk, who are ama- I mean, we got the Walkmen, so like, win-win. Um, although it would have been awesome to have. I, 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 one of my secret hopes is that Jonathan Fireeater will reform in response to this and be like, okay, yes, <laughs> let's do this. Um, I don't know how likely that is. Stewart, I've known him now off and on for whatever, like seven years six or seven years um i had written something that he was involved in prior to the book and so i like had a i had met him or whatever been in touch with him on facebook goes in and out from what i can tell of sort of uh healthfulness um but i mean he was great for this and the couple of times i've spoken to him since then he's been you know great and then not so great and great mm-hmm. and then not so great um i don't i tried to contact him a bunch when i was putting photos together for the book and i didn't get any response from him but i have a feeling we'll hear from them <laughs> they <laughs> were when out. i was first there and trembling with bloom, bloom lights was big but there was like a real attitude about those guys mm. among my friends of those guys being pri- private school kids that's so funny. um and just be, or basically being rich kids who were kind of like vamping off of dc punk uh-huh. credentials but were like they could afford practice spaces mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But the thing that you get out of there that's really interesting is that at that moment, there's this sort of bifurcation of, and you kind of see it in the DFA guys a little bit, and you would see it again and again and again happening where it's like some people are into it and they're into like the New York lifestyle of being like, this is just like the best. I hope this time lasts forever. <laughs> and if my life peaks with DJing, a, a more a plant bar on Wednesdays, <laughs> mm-hmm. then my life is well lived. Like and Luke Jenner's like that. Like he's just totally. like I would just like bar back at plant and play Ziggy Stardust on a ten thousand dollar sound system to no one, to, to no, no one, and lock it would customers be in the yeah. bar. Incredible what scenes is. like yeah. that. And then there are. As Which now that you put it that way sounds pretty good. It does sound Hold like on. it's just like I'm that. To, can we totally rewind? Yeah. yeah. And then there's like the other arc of that, which is people saying like. But there is something to this, and there there yeah. could be, we could be stars. And because they are, a lot of these guys had, and and, and women had like a concept of rock stardom at a very. But Karen did too. Karen did too. At these yeah. mod nights and being like, that's where I invented Karen O. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then when you see her and you're just like, somebody just put friggin' Pat Benatar like right in front of me <laughs> at, at Mighty Robot and. But but it's kind like, of interesting. Yeah, 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 it's kind of interesting that ambitious people yeah. in the right place at the right time. And ambitious, as we talk about in the book, like used to be a bad word, but ambitious people can use scenes, and by scenes I mean a gathering of creative people at a certain time in a certain place, like step stools. Yes. And 
Other times, the steps will get shoved under their feet and they fall off and they fall off hard. I mean, one of the beautiful things about the stories in the book is like we put bands on pedestals, we put albums on pedestals or certain songs or certain moments, but people just couldn't hang, you know, and people are human. You, you, you Turns read this, out, yeah. yeah. You read this, and you know you could joke about, well, the Strokes never really made it, or Interpol kind of scraped the ceiling, almost. And then you're like, well, okay. After Antics, they were really fucked up on drugs. They yeah. didn't like each other. Yeah. And then they made a bad record. Like yeah. that, of course they did. And then the media moved on. It's. And it, then they've made good record. I mean, that's what's it's. I, but I have stuff to say about that, but I also just want to say about what you're saying. Like the idea, this sort of myth-building thing and your awareness of your doing it in the moment. One, It's really important, and this kind of distinction I think also feeds into the criticisms of various bands that have to do with privilege and money mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. There's an important, there's space between ambitious and wanting to be fucking famous like yes. Rolling Stone cover band rock stars or whatever the you know, sort of like perfect avatar for what that would look like is, you know, playing the Grammys or something. I mean, something kind of that would feel gross and big in a kind of flat way, right? And everyone, and there's a similar distinction between, I think, I mean, it's not similar, but the distinction, kind of the map of it is similar between coming from money, quote unquote, and having cultural privilege. And I think, you know, these are art school kids, the Yeah Yeahs are art school kids. The Strokes are not, but they came from New York City. They were New York City kids. They're like urban creatures, yeah. and that informs you in a certain way. It makes you cultured in a certain way. Um, they came from sort of, uh, in to varying degrees, immigrant families with like sort of interesting creative backgrounds. Money, some of them had it, some of them didn't, but that cultural richness really shapes mm-hmm. this. These are not like, the whole idea about sort of money and privilege and rock and roll really pretends that it's you're either like Rihanna yeah. or you're it's like, like the outsiders or something. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. Right. Yeah, it's like socialism. It's socialism and Greece. Yeah. Yes. And that the opposite is like this true blue collar, no books in the house, kind of like you just had to play guitar rock because it was you know, otherwise you'd probably be in jail. And yeah. it's like there's kind of some space between those two things. And so for for when I, what I think is really clear about Karen and that I think she's a kind of cause Karen is to me the ultimate rock star of this entire story that's it's part of why she's on the cover and i it's i really did hear i've said this in doing press for the book from a lot of the other artists how much they wanted to be her or worship her from a lot of the dude artists so to me that that stands true but karen talks about this she was incredibly creatively ambitious and also not that psyched about being famous and of course we see that all the time in culture with filmmakers or anybody else musicians but I think that is you know so that distinction can sound kind of tired like oh yeah right great you want to be able you want to be like an indie artist with tons of money and the access to anything you want to do all that but you want to be not recognized and that's not really a trade-off you can fully have and that's fair. That's a fair criticism. But I do think all of these bands, especially the sort of generation one artists that we're talking about in this story, felt that way, with the possible exception of James Murphy, mm-hmm. because he had enough experience and he's a little later and he'd already been in indie rock bands mm-hmm. and all, everyone else getting successful was pissing him off. And that was more of a competitive like. And he had like an almost a canonical ambition where he yes, died that there's that exactly. line in the rapture part where he's like. 
we're going to make Moon Safari or OK Computer, yeah. and it's going to be the record that people go back to from he, this time that, period that guy over and in, over. He lives in superlatives. Yeah, yeah. and, and he, he was thinking about how he would rank mm-hmm. in, that, in that band. And I don't think the Strokes were, and I don't think Karen was in the same way, which is not the same as saying they weren't ambitious. They were incredibly ambitious. I mean, so, Karen's such an incredible New York story because yeah. it really is that thing of coming to the city mm-hmm. and just being like, I'm just going to be a different person now. Like, I, And I, I can know, be a different right? person on Friday, and then I can be a different person next Wednesday. When which is what we all do there, yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah. I mean, I remember very distinctly the, there being this. It was a very murky time of, you know, you would. I, I was working at Kim's, and I would go to Mighty Robot and see the AIS play with like Oneida, and Oneida yeah. would be bigger, and it, you know what I mean. And I was <laughs> right. just like that. But then, very, very right around maps I think it was just like oh oh just kidding yeah, yeah. and it was just like yeah. this is actually the biggest band yeah and these guys could be um, huge yeah. like once people hear this song yeah because for totally. as much as I love many of the songs by many of the artists in here and many of the albums the yeah, yeah, as I saw them at the Roxy I was out here for a different story in 2004 and mm-hmm. it was the best I think it's one of the best shows I've ever seen that totally. was a rock and roll show take away the quotes you know they, 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 <laughs> yes. they did it it, yeah. One of the things that we're talking about and that you explore so well in the book is just the the the, the vagaries of and, and chance that are associated with time and context yeah. and what happens you know if Jonathan Fire Eater in the '90s what would happen if they were in the 2000s um, mm. similarly um, how fast how much faster everything oh, started yeah. to happen and I was thinking about this the, the 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 time between the Strokes debut and Vampire Weekend is maybe six years mm-hmm. both groups are. Uh, ambitious, well-versed in musical history from not poor backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And, and that didn't say any of them are super loaded, but you know they, they both came from certain levels of privilege or comfort. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously their, their cultural touchstones are different, but the way that each navigated, one was the end of something and one was the beginning of something. Totally. And neither could have existed in a different if you fast forward six years or reverse them by six years. Absolutely. Six years earlier, um, or however many years earlier, what are what are Vampire Weekend? If Vampire Weekend tried to do this in ninety nine or two thousand. Well, and also to your point, I mean, it's impossible. It's a it's an you can do the thought experiment of what would have happened if the Strokes existed five years later, but I don't think you can do the even imagine the thought experiment mm-hmm. of the reverse because there is no Ezra brain without the internet. Like there is no Ezra yeah. musical brain without yeah. that. So a band like the Strokes could, in theory, do have wanted to do or have created I mean then you have all the issues that we were already talking about like what maybe not actually because they they needed this is the distinction that person A from the period in which the strokes rose Mm -hmm. had to figure out what kind of band they wanted to be and that's like an affirmative statement like these are people who have like you know whatever in theory again sort of more generally a clash poster on the wall and a david bowie poster on the wall and like heard moon safari maybe mm-hmm. in a few years earlier and had their mind blown by this sense of sort of more dreamy more electronic stuff and somehow that's like okay so we want to do there's an empty cardboard box we want to be a little bit of this a little bit of this mm-hmm. a little bit of this it's an affirmative selection from a place of nothing to start um a couple years later I mean the age difference between like Ezra and Julian is like literally I think they might have been in high school they might have like four years Mm -hmm. yeah you know something like that they could have been in school together for a second Um, 
the, by that time, it's the complete opposite question of what kind of band you want to be. It's not what kind of band do you want to be. It's what kind of band don't you want to be. How do you? I love mm-hmm. when Rostam is talking about like we made rules. Okay, you're not going to have any of the the sort of Strokes guitar sound or their drum beat. No, we're not doing any of that. No or t-shirts no, on stage. No, right. T- right. And the, just these that the, the but the, what that shows. I mean, that's an insane thing to be able to identify about yourself, even because what that means is you're basically and those guys. I mean, the Vampire Weekend guys are and the Strokes guys, but. There, we're talking already about people who are predisposed to sophisticated, creative, mm-hmm. you know, art in the music making world. So I'm not saying like any brain can do this. We're already talking. We're starting with like some pretty talented musical minds, but just that someone like Ezra would have sat in their bedroom downloading, as he says, you know, everything from Kate Bush to Public Enemy and have have put all of that into his mind computer style mm-hmm. before he'd ever really thought about what kind of band to be in. And that is literally, it's like, I mean, you and I talked about this for the interview for this. It's like a hundred years in five in terms of development of just the mind mm-hmm. of what type of person wants to be in a band. Yeah. And, and you read your book and you realize um, Albert and, and, and Nick and Julian all say, we like Pearl Jam and Nirvana. Yeah. Because they were they were our age, they, more or less. They yes. were They were alternative kids. Yes. Whereas Ezra, and this is, you let me talk about this in the book too, like when I interviewed Ezra for Spin for the cover story in like the end of 07, the beginning of 08, I was like interviewing an alien. He's not that I much know, younger than me. I know, I love this part. But I, 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 I was so, I became the oldest man in the universe. I was so <laughs> angry at him. Like, how dare you go to an Ivy League school and be white and like hip hop, said the guy who went to an Ivy League school and was white and like hip hop. <laughs> but how dare you, you talk about it and have have fluency in all these different worlds and jump between things and never break a sweat. And he's literally just like, I do not know what you mean because he didn't, you know? But the funny thing is that Julian was the same way because if you were like, oh, so you guys are like, what if you took like television but then like made it with like Tom Petty and he would just be like, I don't know what you're talking about. He's just like, I just want to be in a Guided by Voices cover band. Seriously, they did though. (laughs) But I do think, I mean, not to slag, I won't say this specifically about the Strokes or even any particular band because it's not like I was in their mind, but... I feel pretty comfortable saying that the average, you know, that that some just by virtue of what we just said, it's no slight, but that someone in Ezra's position, the average someone mm-hmm. in Ever- Ezra's position versus the average someone in Julian's position or mine, for that matter, because I'm around their age, like, did not have anything like the musical sophistication. Oh, yeah. Because you couldn't. So it's, it's so... They were, it is kind of, I mean, it depends, there's people who really disagree with whether this is actually an advancement or not because of what it does Mm -hmm. to how the music sounds. And I actually am kind of on that team and I have stuff to say about that. Like, I think, I I don't like, should I, is this a place to talk? (laughs) Yeah, hot mic. Um, Is this a safe place? Um, I don't feel, music is more than the sum of its influences, right? Like how well you know, I do not like, I don't I don't like stuff that's so complex and smart. I feel the same way about writing or any other kind of art that's so technical and so brainy that it forgets to be about like sex, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's it. And I mean that in a sort of categorical way, but like that it forgets to be like primal and emotion driven. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think some of the bands that came up in the Brooklyn era, so to speak, whether they were from Brooklyn or not, um, had you see them sort of bell and whistling on first records and even second records and then like I love all those bands but it took it to me it took like a couple album cycles to work some of those kinks out in terms of just there's so much to do and we know how to do it so like let's do it so for me there's a there's a there's a a fine line to, to where your ability to 
have access to all this information like overloads you to the point of not being able to mm-hmm. make anything that's moving anymore mm-hmm. and that's the challenge of current that's the challenge current artists face if you ask me and so in a way there's like I mean Jack White has talked not in the book but amazingly about this over the years about sort of the the I mean this is the band was formed on this right we need limits yeah. we need structure right. we need the the experiment the sort of like gaming our own minds of saying you can only do x y or z we mm-hmm. have two instruments how does that look the discipline of that was inadvertently placed on all the bands in the early part of this book because you had to go find a record if you wanted to find it. So, I mean, Albert says, like, we didn't know who television were, and I believe that. I totally believe it, too. Um, And, you know, the the other side of of needing or wanting that primal feeling to the music is the, I, I still will never, ever forget this, is, like, the most out there, like, complete like space cadets that I worked with at Kim's yeah. would play Is This It? Mm. And they would just be like, yeah, this thing is undeniable. Like, That's awesome. And you would play it and in, whether it was the 300th time you'd heard it that week or whether or not we'd been listening to the EP for like however many months before the album came out or whatever, but you would just play it and it was like that That and B- Bright Lights were like these two things where you're just like, this is like this is like as good as rock music gets. Yes. Like this is just we're as, good. Like, these like, songs yeah. are actually, and this yeah. is why the Mooney Suzuki didn't make it, or why for whatever personality reasons or would have been. Like yes, you can be cool and wear leather and have three chords, but like those three chords and in that order mm-hmm. and with that voice and is, so simple. Yeah. right. That's what is deceptive about it is people are like. I mean, even the shit that gets thrown at Interpol where it's like the, uh, you know, they sound like Joy Division or something like that. It's like I always thought that was funny even at the time because I'm like, how? That's hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's pretty good. Yeah, like they're pretty – and they don't really. They, they do, don't. but they, they really – you know, I know what people mean. Again, yeah. this returns to the thing I always return to in rock journalism, which I have been fighting about it for my whole career basically. But it's, it's not about – the sort of anatomy of the song structure. It's about the emotional resonance. And when people say Joy Division sound or Interpol sound like Joy Division, they mean I feel things mm. when I hear this that that Joy Division also make me feel. And that is not the same as saying they sound alike. That's a huge, amazing compliment. And that's what that's the thing that mm-hmm. you're talking. I mean, it's undeniable because these bands found a main line to a primal human thing. Oh, yeah. And right, if if any other band could have done it, they would have, and they didn't. So they, I'm talking about guys who, 99% of the time, if you were like, it's your turn to put something on a stereo, it was like, like the German techno that backs performance <laughs> installations yeah. we'd be like oh great so glad this oh 72 like, minutes is like, that like, as long as a CD can go I'm like, like Burger Inc yeah you know like pole pole two <laughs> and, then, and it would just be like sitting there like I can't believe I'm not high like while I'm yeah. to sit through this and then they would be like ah well let's just listen is this it amazing <laughs> so let's go, just go back into the weeds of this book for a minute um, all those interviews that you did you spoke to so many different people about very uh, fertile crazy often addled times in their lives were Indeed. you surprised how willing people were to talk like people I mean to be in a rock band means you believe in printing the legend that is first and foremost yeah, the case yeah I think so but you know, generally, and and all three of us know this, but Lizzie, you're still in the trenches. You know this that like when you're on a an interview where for, on an album release cycle and you get access to an artist or a band, that's not the time you talk to them about their drug use or their partying or their friends, unless the album is specifically called "I'm Clean Now." You know what I mean? Like which which right. you know basically 
either al- albums are either I'm not clean now or I'm clean now. Those but, are the two types of albums. That's and correct. And the two yes. types of rock journalism stories. That's as you know. correct. Yes. But God help us. Yes. How did it work? Were people just ready to talk or did you have to do this sort of stacking psychological thing where you would say, well, Albert said this and Ryan admitted this. Mm-hmm. How did it work? How Machiavellian and manipulative was I really is sort of the question. I mean, I think I don't I I've I have not come up with a good answer to this question. I don't know why. I, I think because the reporting for this book was so different from how I would report anything mm-hmm. else. I mean, A, I talked to a lot of these people many times. Mm-hmm. So one interview might be one. And I'm talking over five years. So the way somebody is, this is a lifetime in a certain way. I mean, it's a mini lifetime in terms of how people were feeling a lot. So there were a bunch of people who were in the book who didn't, who declined to participate, who eventually decided to participate. You know, it's not like on day one, I was like, great, Julian's so psyched to get on the phone and talk to me about this. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's not how this happened. You know, there there was a lot of kind of politicking behind the scenes and incredible, just unbelievably generous uh promotion of me and my project by people like Ryan Gentles or Imran or these these people who you see, read in the book who are characters but who are huge almost executive producers of right. this even happening because they would email people on my behalf and say, you know, basically she's not terrible and you could speak to her. We are or mm-hmm. you know kind of vouching for the project. Um so that's part of it. Like I labored on a level that I would never have time or really need to labor if you're doing a magazine piece for this because it was my brand. It's not like I'm Lizzie calling from, you know, New York Magazine to do a thing and the brand is essentially New York and do you Mm -hmm. want to be in a New York Magazine story about this thing and I will be the voice behind it. But it was like, I'm me. I'm doing this book about us. There's no shoot and there's no, exactly, there's no, the structure of it was completely different for me and I think for the artist too. Just what is this really, well, what are you, what what am I signing up for? And it's like, the other thing I was able to say in response to the what am I signing up for question was, which is different from normal journalism, is whatever you want. There are people in this book, I'm glad that people feel like the quotes are awesome and you're getting a lot of good material. I I agree. I mean, I obviously, that's why I put them in. But there's also, not everyone unburdened themselves. Mm -hmm. I mean, I a bunch of people did, and that's awesome, but a bunch of people didn't. And what I said to people, and I meant it, and a lot of people took me up on this, is let's talk for 20 minutes about your favorite bar in New York in an era you liked. But you're important. This is a this is a, the lead character in this story is New York City. It's not the Strokes. It's not, you know, the Realistics. It's neither the the sort of mm-hmm. the biggest band that you can think of, nor is it the smallest band you can think of. It's New York. It's this period of time. I want it to feel authentic to that period of time. You were there. You you were a character in New York story. Can you give me a few quotes about what it was like then? And some people who got on the phone or would meet me in person really did do that. Didn't say would take a pass when I would say stuff like, well, your bandmate is telling me that, you know, you guys did so many drugs at whatever club and whatever year. They might just say, yeah, I don't really want to talk about that. Mm-hmm. And that happened, you know. So the reason it reads so dirty like that is just that I talked to a lot of people and a lot of people did kind of go there or were encouraged to go there by other stories other people were telling. And I think that's a testament to the form of oral history, exactly as you say, Andy, that like, it is harder to like it is harder to stay silent when your friend 
who's also your business partner, who you've known for 15 years in your same band, is giving the dirt. There's a natural sort of performative instinct when I would bring up quotes from bandmates to say, well, actually, you know, so I'm not saying that never worked or wasn't part of the sort of technique of getting this done, but it was also not required in the same way that when you're doing regular journalism, you sort of, I at least am less inclined. I don't let people tell me what I can or can't ask them. So I wouldn't roll into an interview with someone for a project unless they were hugely, hugely important, saying, I'm barely going to ask you anything about what you think I'm going to ask you about. In fact, like, can you just tell me any, like, tell me about your mom. And like, I'm sure I can make something work from that about that period of time. That's not what I normally say, but I did say it here. And some people took me up on that. We're going to have more from Lizzie in just a second, but let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Watch is also brought to you by Shudder, the premium streaming video service devoted to thrillers, horror, and suspense. Backed by AMC Network, Shudder has a growing and dynamic selection of thrilling exclusive films and series, including the pregnancy horror comedy Prevenge, which is incredible, Sophia Takal's Always Shine, and The Ring vs. The Grudge franchise mashup, Sadako vs. Kayako. This week's Shudder highlight is Yord Scott, a 10-episode detective series praised as a Borgen and Stranger Things mashup by the Toronto Star. When Eva, a policewoman, returns to her hometown seven years after her daughter's disappearance, she quickly begins investigating a new wave of vanishing children. As her search draws deep into the forest, she realizes there are supernatural secrets in the town, and if she exposes them, it could make someone or something very angry. Dread Central calls it the kind of mystery show you wish were made more often. Go to Shudder.com and use promo code WATCH at checkout for a free month to start watching Yord Scott today. That's Shudder.com and enter promo code WATCH for a free month. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by, as always, the homies from Sonos. You know, I never really wanted to do like the home theater thing. It just seems kind of ostentatious. But with the Sonos Playbase, you can have all the sound from the home theater without like the fake movie theater chairs and the popcorn machine and the welcome to my screening room vibe that only creepy people have. It is simple. It just goes right under the television. There's no mounting involved. It's basically a TV stand. I put it underneath mine. I got to say, it somehow made my television look cooler. Yeah, it's sleek, low-profile design. It practically disappears beneath the television, and it fills your entire living room with pulse-pounding epic theater at home audio. From movies and sports to TV shows and games, the slim, low-profile playbase adds dynamic, pulse-pounding sound to whatever's playing on your TV, even streams music when it's off. So it's just basically like, oh, I'll just turn this on and have a stereo now. That's pretty cool. Plus, since it was created for TVs that sit on stands and furniture, there's no wall mounting required. All you need is one power cord and one optical cord. That's it. You don't even need to read a manual. The Sonos app guides you through every step of setup. Everything sounds better on Playbase. See for yourself and go to Sonos.com to learn more. That's S-O-N-O-S.com. And now we continue our conversation with Lizzie Goodman about her book, Meet Me in the Bathroom. I think one of the other things that's really remarkable about the book and, and really nice is that it it has the right level of romanticism about everything. <laughs> it is not, um, and this is also, you know, it, it's very fortunate, but a lot of the people in this book mm. seem to have the same attitude that the rest of us who survived our, our 20s uh, do, which is like, boy, that was a great time. As Paul Banks from Interpol says, he was yes. on safari a lot. Best line ever. Um, Thanks, Paul. You know, Albert Hammond goes through some very dark times, but because he's been through recovery and is doing very well now, he's very forthcoming about a lot of it. There seems to be a, there seems to be the same kind of gentle, bittersweet nostalgia yeah. for their own careers and the time in their yeah, life I that we all it... have, and for New York, except there is a villain. Oh, yeah? to, apparently, <laughs> there's a villain that's emerged from these pages. Yeah. And um, 
curious how you feel about how how uh, how Ryan Adams comes out out of this. And I, I, yeah, you know, we're big we're big fans of Ryan Adams. Huge. But he definitely definitely never blew off our podcast. <laughs> he definitely definitely never did. That is hyperbole. It's not true. It's hearsay. Well, I mean, I'm glad you're settling that rumor right now. Yeah, I want to squash it. I, I, I feel you squashing it. People yeah. saw him maybe at the security gate of the studio. <laughs> you're kind of, you know, they, she, now she can't write, meet me at the podcast. And like, yeah, <laughs> way to blow up my next project. I, I, I'm just saying that was not true if you thought you saw him about to come on our podcast. <laughs> Apparently, I'm seeing things. I'm telling you, having written an oral history, there's no such thing as like actual memory. Um, so there you go. I mean, I think that Ryan, like, Ryan was amazing to talk to. It took me quite a while to get him, and he was supposed to give me 20 minutes, and he gave me three and a half hours. And I remember I was sitting in my house where I live upstate now. Um, in the it was summer and it was like the, I was sitting in the grass and I can remember like I when I when I was transcribe or when I was pulling the quotes for the Ryan stuff I would like sense memory where I had moved at these because we mm. were just on the phone for so long it was like then I went and made tea I can remember get this when he was talking about this I was like boiling the kettle and then we were going in here I mean it was really a classic Ryan marathon and he's I mean I don't think I think Ryan into your question is in part like how does what do I think of how he comes off in the book I think Ryan comes off the same way everybody else comes off in the book in that like he did some weird stuff he had some like combative relationships with people he had high points he had low points he did a lot of drugs like he loved New York City to the point of but that's the thing he loved New York City. He loved he, those bands. He loved these yeah. bands. He loved being there. He was like the ultimate New York character. He whirls on in. He's like, this is so cool. He knew to be there then. He wanted, I mean, he was so fun to be around during that period of time, at least for me. There were there were two you things know? we could always count on. He, like when we would be at Hi-Fi for long nights, yes. we would know that Ryan Adams was across the street underneath Niagara yep. recording with any, literally anybody. And we knew yeah. that Carlos was at San Loco next door. Totally. Always and that's, you could set your clock by these things in <laughs> and 2003 that was actually, or you something. Know, you, talked to, I, you talked in the beginning about the idea of like, well, was this like some of the people being like, was this really that important or yeah. whatever? But the thing that came out that jumped out at me was like, yeah, this was the story. <laughs> like Ryan showed up and, and you knew that he was like obsessed with the strokes. Yes. He made rock and roll. Like he was around. I still ride for that album. He was at these yeah. shows. He would just be at Brownies, then High Fi or whatever, you know. And he would just be like, he was a little bit of an interloper in a way that was like not bad. But you were just like, oh yeah, man. But like, you look at Ryan, like when I was sort of, you know, what do they call that in this this Hollywood land storyboarding, yeah, right? Like yeah, yeah. how this works. Ryan showed up not around the same time Connor Ober showed up. Yes. Okay. People forget that he was so, there. Totally. And like Connor is, you know, will be the first to tell you that he's no Puritan in his life. And like yet, so the, the idea of carpet, I guess I just think how you choose, this is what you were talking about, like how you choose to feel about your own past experience shapes how you shapes everything. It's like your focus and how, the story you're telling yourself about who you are is how you're going to read anything about you. So like what's been gratifying about this period of time about the book coming out and seeing people read their own quotes is for the most part people are like God, I talked about cocaine a lot. God, I talked about <laughs> that would certainly be that's coming up from time to time. Yes, I'm hearing that one. But also like it was really fun. Like yeah. God, it was fun. I mean, oh, did I really have to tell you about that all that cocaine or did I really, you know, but that you just if you want to be a villain and you want to be like a person who's feeling 
uh, sort of uh, somehow violated by the telling of your own story or the telling of other people's stories, like that's available to mm-hmm. you. And that's available for a lot of people in this book, not named Ryan Adams, like a lot of yeah. other people. And that's not really what I'm hearing from most of them. Um, we should start to wrap up just to let you go. You've been very generous with your time here. No, um, a couple things I did want to get to. Sure. Obviously, these interviews spanned a, a number of years, but of the people that you spoke to, um, were there any that stood out in your mind as being full of any kind of regret or disappointment? Or conversely, mm. were there any who seemed like they were in even better places now having gone through this, whether or not their sound scan numbers matched that? <laughs> right. That's a really good question. I think, um, I mean, James and Albert both come to mind, mm-hmm. Albert Hammond and James Murphy. I think because they both were, it's 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 hard I'm sure that I could answer that question well about people who maybe didn't tell me as much. Like, there mm-hmm. might be answers in there that I just don't know. But I think that those two were very forthcoming, so I know a little bit more about how they were feeling about things. And I think – and it's also important to note that unlike other rock projects, which are told maybe a long time after the bands are sort of not in the current – not making records anymore. All these bands are still, for the most part, active and doing interesting stuff. So that is part of it, too. It's sort of like there we're all, as we've discussed, like remembering our own relatively recent history. So it's sort of like, how am I doing now? It's almost like they have, haven't necessarily thought about that in quite that yeah. way until you ask. But I think Albert, both are true. I mean, I think he really went through it. And I think he was unbelievably generous with sharing that. And... Uh, Paul, too, um, from Interpol. And both are also, like, both of those people are also in really good places in their lives, it seems, and in their creative lives, which is not always the same thing. Like, Mm -hmm. sometimes you kind of have to pick. Like, I'm either going to participate in this crazy, I can either make art or I can be a sane human, and I can't do both. And both of those guys have have navigated that. And same of James. It's just sort of a unique thing that, um, you know, you, Lizzie, were the same age as many of these people mm-hmm. in, when these things were happening. You, like all of us, we were out, we were doing things, we were living our lives. But um, you know, now you're at a place in your career where you've written this incredible book, and this is an you know this is a great moment. Whereas yeah. some of the people you're talking about are talking about things that may be perceived as their great moments that yeah. are in the rearview mirror. Yeah, it's um, weird. It's a very weird thing. I could only imagine for them to feel that way, particularly as you're saying they still. Not only do they still feel vital, they probably still are vital. So most of these guys aren't 40. I know. Uh, but As but, I said, we are not that old. Um, yeah. It's you, weird. Uh, no, just that, I mean, yeah, I think that, that is a, that's exactly it, right. It was, and it was it's youthful odd. abandon for it was some youthful, of us, yes. but it was their number one record for them. I know. And that, and that there's a thing about contending with that that you couldn't possibly understand unless you'd been through it. And I think there's a there's a euphemism about like you are arrested at the age in which you get famous yeah right you know i think there's some truth to that and mm-hmm. i think that ha- which speaks a lot to why james kind of has it together exactly a bit more. or yeah. jack white i yeah. mean he's another good example these are people just having a couple years on the guys that got famous at 21 is or women um the one let's be real i mean <laughs> god damn it you know more go <laughs> girls to the front anyway <laughs> please. um please um but Yeah, I think that that is another reason that it's sort of poignant to see people's mostly 
positive sort of like emotionally responsible reaction to a lot of this. Like I was prepared for a lot worse, to be honest. And it's nice to see that people are kind of, again, I think it's partially to do with the fact that this isn't one individual's story. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of dip in if you're someone who had a hit record that shaped your that is that is the, your, that is still shaping your life and your sense of yourself and that hit record came out in 2002 like there's a way to kind of observe I've heard this from Karen actually like it, she said it was so interesting to read all of my peers view of this period of time and sort of have a different relationship with my own story in response to that I think that's part of what helps this be hopefully um, not quite as like uh, as painful really mm-hmm. um, for the reasons as it might be for the reasons you say you obviously had to be like almost like an archaeologist for this time totally um, when you look back on this time period musically because one of the interesting themes that happens throughout the book I didn't look not crazy about the themes but there is a degree <laughs> it's to all which right. Go there on. is a degree to which um, there's this tension between self-sabotage and ambition mm-hmm. and there's a question about like how big could they have been if just this mm-hmm. right and sometimes when, you know, I feel we've talked about Room on Fire and how much we love that record and there's songs on future, later Strokes records that are just like galactically good. Mm-hmm. But there's something about the Strokes that is not Coldplay. There's something about the Strokes that's a little mean. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And a little bit exclusive. Uh, and that's that makes me think that they could never have been that big. They could never have been the Foo Fighters. Is there any could have been contenders, bands or mm. or songs that you went back and listened to and you were like, how is this not my hero by Foo Fighters or something or, you know, uh, right. Viva La Vida or something like that? I mean, people say The Rat by The Walkman. Yeah. I, I don't, I hear that, but that's not the one that, honestly, I mean, it was the realistics to me. Like, when I used to hear them play, I thought they were, it was like, Stadium Elvis Costello. I mean, it just felt to me, they felt a bit again. This, we're talking about it's not like I thought, oh, tom-, first of all, I was 21. So I wasn't thinking, you know, you're not thinking any yeah. of this at the time, which is part of the point. I had no background in music journalism and didn't understand the industry. But in terms of like bigness, that sense of sprawling, like I'm, uh, I can feel this in a car with the windows rolled down on an American highway, kind of. I mean, maybe not American highway in their case because they are a little, they were sort of. There was something, yeah, kind of like naughty English about them, but the sound was much cleaner mm-hmm. to me and more, um, yeah, richer and bigger. It's the big thing um, than the Strokes were, which, and that's not how they sounded. And so them, but I mean, it's not like I'm saying, oh, you know, I thought the Realistics were going to be Tom Petty because I, I wasn't thinking about that. Nobody yeah. was. Yeah. Um, yeah. You thought none of these bands would ever be anybody. That was the no. whole point of liking them in a certain way. It was, it was like, how rad is it that we get to be here right now listening to this? It's just that Slowhand sounded good at Lit. Like, Slowhand it was just, that, that, sounded it, it, so good at Lit. But exactly. that's also kind well, of like at, saying. And then the question is really, it's like Seven Nation Army gets sung after every goal in Germany. <laughs> yeah. So is to that, me, the idea of exactly to be able to say. At that time, it was just as crazy to say that the White Stripes would get to that level of yes. fame as it would have been to say that the Realistics would be yeah. get, to, get to that level of fame. So you feel weird sort of arguing that right now, but it's like, what the hell are the White Stripes doing in that? Yeah. No, that was not supposed to happen. There's one thing about what you just said that I just want to add that Jenny Ellescu talks about. And I think she, this quote is in the book and it's in the New York Magazine excerpt. And I really, this quote, like, when I Jenny is brilliant, um, a brilliant critic, a brilliant historian of music and art. 
she when I heard when she told me this, I was like, I understood the answer to this much better than I. She helped me figure this out. Basically, she talks about the difference between underground and mainstream and not in the sense of like, ew, like, ew, mainstream, yeah. like in the sense of big, rad, like Tom Petty. Joshua Tree. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You too. Awesome bands who are big in that way, mm-hmm. who have the sound you're describing. And she basically says, like, the Strokes were underground. They're this other thing. And the Killers and the Kings of Leon were mainstream. And again, in no kind of dissing way, but in a sense, in the sense of exactly the distinction we're talking about. Like, what is what is this sound really? And what is the idea behind the sound for the artist making it? Julian wanted to be guided by voices. And Brandon Flowers wanted to be a giant rock star. Yeah. And you hear it. Where are they projecting to? Like, both in literal and figurative terms. Exactly. That that has a huge part in it. Um, So I think that, I think about that a lot when I think about the question you just asked in terms of that distinction and who could have been this and who could have been that and whether that question even matters in that way. Yeah. And I hope you don't mind asking about this because I just feel like we have to talk about it before we leave here, which is that, you know, we're talking about how a lot of these people, um, you know, there isn't there isn't sadness in the book. There's nostalgia, but yeah. obviously we lost someone who was a close friend of ours, um, particularly a close friend of yours. The book is dedicated to him, yeah. uh, Mark Spitz. And one of the truly great gifts of this book is that he is so present and so alive <laughs> in this book. No one would have loved. I mean, no one. You know this. No one would have loved being in the book more. No one would have loved being called out as a star of the book more. No one would have felt exactly. he was not in it enough more. <laughs> that was Mark's primary criticism of the book. Was uh, he was like, it's pretty good. I could be in it more. He, when I, you know, we we lost him in February. Um, in the small piece I wrote about him, I was saying, and I still believe this, which is why I'm saying it again. Like, for as much as there always should be rock and roll bands like the ones you write about here, there should be a rock and roll writer yeah. who's willing to take those chances, believe, dream that big, and go that hard. Go that hard, Um, yeah. Could you just talk a little bit about his role in, literally, he's he's one of our, like, Dante's (laughs) into this world. (laughs) Which is what, I gotta say, it's what he always, he wrote a memoir, it's what he always wanted to be. He's, I know, he's very pleased, I I know that. Um, And, you know, people have asked me whether, you know, whether, I'm comfortable talking about him and like why and I I I want to talk about him because it's exactly what he would want me to do and and, and also mm-hmm. because it's relevant to the story for a variety of reasons. It's relevant because he's a huge character in the book. It's relevant because I dedicated the book to him. So he's relevant on the page in a in a and and by relevant I mean like a major character in this story and a commentator on it. And so funny. And so fu- I mean you need when you're writing an oral history. I learned from writing one, having never written one before. <laughs> stupid, stupid, stupid. Anyway, um, you really and you were great at this too. I mean, you need characters who are authorities, you know, critically minded, so to speak, but not criticky in their speech patterns because it has to match the tone and tenor of this sort of like scene and by scene I mean actual visual you can see what's happening kind of scene telling that's how I wanted it to feel I wanted it to feel like you could watch it when you're reading it and Mark has a gift his I mean an unbelievable writer and an unbelievable ear for dialogue like his plays and his I mean I always think I used to tell him all the time when when I was willing to compliment him which was you know you had to be careful with that very Um, very stingy very very stingy with that that I thought his music writing was actually his least the the least good stuff that he produced even though it's amazing because his ear for dialogue and his sense of sort of 
profane storytelling in his plays and in his screenplay work and and in his memoir for sure and novels and stuff was so good. I mean, just so sharp. And he has this way in this book, I mean, of I needed someone to come in and be able to say rock writers were stuffing lobsters in their pants at fancy parties, as opposed to someone coming in and saying, well, this was an era of decadence in the music industry and there was quite a mm-hmm. bit of money rolling around. And it's just like, yo, we were stealing shit from parties because it was free and we were broke. And just the ability to to kind of color in the time that way. Um, so I know that Mark, I mean, he before he died, I already felt like he was a huge gift to this project. And then, I mean, the other thing is just, you know, he was my boyfriend for years and he was my friend for a lot longer than that. And he the, this project was, as we've discussed, unbelievably daunting. And I really wasn't aware of what I had gotten into. I really wasn't. And it took longer than it should have. And all the, you know, it was hard. It was really hard for a long time to make this happen. Um, And Mark was my lifeline. Like I would get on the phone with him and just say, I, I, this one note is coming to my, I would, I didn't know how to do this really. Mm -hmm. And he has written some of the greatest oral histories in journalism and he understood the form really well and he helped me. So I would say one example in particular is early on, I had kind of all the bands we're talking about, their, their early life stories, kind of pre-9-11, the rush to them mm-hmm. finding their sonic voice, so to speak, and moving into the... And it was kind of propulsive, but you would have to be with Interpol for 20 pages, and then you'd have to be with the AAS for 20 mm-hmm. pages. It was not broken up successfully. And I was like, but I don't know. I was I remember being, you know, on in my house, on the floor, like kind of in a ball, like, I can't make this work. And I called Mark, and he said, oh, no problem. You just stop at a particularly exciting point and go to the next band and literally just cut. I mean, mm-hmm. an entire solution for basically the first hundred pages of the book comes from one note that Mark just had in his pocket. Like he was on the way to get a coffee and was like, oh, yeah, I have a second. Yeah, here's what you do. <laughs> Boom. I was like, Th- thanks. Talk to you later. <laughs> you know, click. It's it's wonderful to talk about him and maybe even end here because, you know, I feel like the thing about the, you leave this book thinking is that um, – New York City means different things to different people, but everybody needs it, whether you live there or not. And mm-hmm. everybody needs it to exist as something. And that thing is almost always 50% or more fictional yes. or, or uh, affected. And that's part of the thing that makes it great. And you need people to believe, like James Murphy, believe that he could throw these parties and pull it off. You, you know, the Carlos D could wear a holster. Like, you need to have <laughs> yeah. some sort of otherworldly faith in something. The fantasy. And, of that, and, yes. and I think that Mark, when, like when I met him, and I'm sure when you met him too, as a just graduated from college and I'm like I'm gonna write about pavement and I'm gonna live in New York City and he was just like blowing cigarette smoke in my face and wearing a boa and wear a boa and saying New York City has to be something more than this there has to be more and he was dogged about that and it and he he helped find it and in this book he helps readers find it and 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 you did an amazing job recreating it for everyone yeah it's an amazing achievement it's just like also just like such a touching I, I think everybody leaves New York and thinks that New York has then closed the door. Like, you know, and it's like New York's right. like put up like a gone fishing sign. the guy sign. who moved out in 2012, one year after <laughs> this book ended. The thing Good that timing. I love about this is how it illustrates just like you could do, yeah. you could just like kind of live in New York and work at San Loco or work at a bar and you could still live there. And that was maybe the, that might be the last time you can do that. Or not. Yeah, I mean, right? that's part of the great, sort of the lesson of New York over and over again is like it's for you when it's for you yeah. and then it's not for you and yeah. it's not for you and the, you know Karen O like our time 
this this idea of this being our time. The idea of that is universal. The time in which that's true for you is not. Mm -hmm. And the book is about our time, meaning the people in this conversation and the people we shared that period with. And it's also, hopefully, universal in that the energy that propelled this period of time is eternal. And it belongs to New York City. Whether you can get it there right now or not is not is certainly harder for all the reasons we know practically, but probably cert- I doubt it's impossible. I know people sure. who are doing it, yeah. but also it might be that New York is right now just happening in you know Kalamazoo for all I know. Sure. Like there's no, but it's still New York. Yeah. If that's if that's where it's happening, it's like there's a brief satellite mm-hmm. outpost of New York City in some city where this is going to be possible, and it's right for us to be feeling that our time ended and it's also right for it to happen again to someone else at some other point in New York City or elsewhere and that's 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 what New York offers is the eternalness of that idea of itself I I, I personally am looking forward to meet me in my abandoned tax shelter condo <laughs> it's got a 64th floor it's gonna be good. <laughs> yeah. me too uh, yeah. yay it's a terrific achievement it's a great conversation do you like this condominium <laughs> I have many of them thank you for coming to talk to us thank you for letting me be a tiny so part much. of it oh my god thank you guys for having me it's such a thrill to be here oh wait can we ask one question yeah yeah is what? the sitter room on fire oh mean no this is a long running yeah i have to pick yeah we made albert Andy... we made albert pick i ran you into him at a pumpkin carving party did you that's, <laughs> what, that's what he's about you these were on days. team yeah, room on fire that sounds you, right, right? Nope. Nice that's i'm i guess i'm on you're room on, on fire. i know where you are now yeah. um i mean i'm i'm i i'm on team is this it okay if i have to All pick right. yeah Meet Me in the Bathroom, Rebirth and Rock and Roll in New York City, 2001-2011, published by Day Street. Yeah. An imprint of HarperCollins. That's correct. <laughs> by Lizzie Goodman. Well done. Go buy it. Thanks so much. Thank you, guys. What fun. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Shudder's exclusive series, George Scott, a 10-episode detective series praised as a Borgen and Stranger Things mashup by the Toronto Star. You can stream it as well as all the best in thrillers, horror, and suspense today at Shudder.com and get a month of Shudder free when you use promo code WATCH at checkout. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Sonos' Playbase. It has changed the way I watch movies. It has changed the way I watch television. It's changed the way FIFA sounds when I'm playing my gaming system and I'm just balling out with Liverpool in the year 2022. Playbase's low-profile design practically disappears beneath my TV. It adds pulse-pounding sound to whatever's playing, and the setup is a breeze. All you need is one power cord, one optical cord. The Sonos app guides you through every step of setup. Everything sounds better on Playbase. See for yourself. Go to Sonos.com, S-O-N-O-S.com.